Many animals have voluntary control over the sounds they make, which would seem to imply those sounds might function as a form of communication. Of course, we can't easily tell what they might be saying, and for a very long time, that allowed us to believe that language capacity was a thing unique to humans and a huge contributor to our success as a species. The identification of a gene that makes talking possible for humans seemed to prove that point, until we realized Neanderthals had it too. And so do rodents, birds, reptiles, and fish. From KERA in Dallas, this is Think. I'm Chris Boyd. So wait, is it possible many species speak, but we just weren't paying attention? And if we learn other animals use something that counts as language, how might we need to reconsider their cognitive abilities? Sonia Shah is a science journalist who's been reporting on the latest developments for the New York Times Magazine. She joined us in October to talk about what she's learned, which she also wrote about in a story headlined, The Animals Are Talking, What Does It Mean? All this week, we're listening back to our favorite conversations of 2023, and this is one of those that makes you rethink everything you thought you knew about cognition, about animals in our lives, and about whether we humans are really as superior as we would like to think. Okay, let's listen to my conversation with Sonia Shaw. I do hope that you will enjoy it as much as I did. Sonia, welcome to Think. Hi, nice to be here. Why do some scholars think determining the origins of language might be the hardest problem in science? I mean, this goes back uh, centuries, actually, um, to the 1800s when linguists said uh, language is so special, it has no counterpart in nature at all. And so we're not a, we're not going to even bother looking for any you know language like abilities in other animals. So it's it's just become this. Um, it, it was just a real mystery of where language might have come from um, for a long time. And linguists and biologists alike decided, sort of you know tacitly, not to really look into it. So it became kind of a almost a taboo question to ask. Um, and that is part of what contributed to making it one of the hardest problems in science. But it's, and it, you know, and it's also so significant because, of course, if we know where language come from comes from, that tells us so much about who we are and, and how we fit into nature. All right, Sonia, let's leave out, say, animals that can mimic the sounds of other species without necessarily knowing what that's all about. So set aside, like, the parrots and their close relatives. Do animal utterances between members of the same species show any evidence of being governed by any detectable rules akin to grammar? That is a pretty, you know, that's a pretty charged question. So grammar, grammar, it, you know, the, the rules we use to combine different sounds, different words, um, it's extremely powerful. Of course, it allows us to kind of create an infinity of meanings from just a, a you know a limited number of of words and sounds that we can make it does seem that other species do combine their calls in different ways to change the meaning um, there's been studies done on a songbird called a Japanese tit for example they have a call for uh, you know different calls for snakes different calls for eagles um, they can understand the calls of a related species of tit bird songbird um, they're not the same species but related they still can understand those other calls um, and sometimes they combine their calls to make new meanings it's not anything like 
the way you and I are talking today, where we're using so many different words and so, you know, combining them in so many complex ways, what scientists have discovered is just a little, little tiny hint of that in other species. But we don't know what whale songs are about. We don't know what dolphin songs are about. You know, there's lots of animals that are making very complex, long strings of sounds um, that have not been decoded at all. So the fact that we've only found some simple forms of combination in other species could be an artifact of the fact that we haven't actually really delved into how the more complex vocalizations and, you know, what they might mean. We used to be certain that only humans use tools. We now have ample evidence from across the animal kingdom that that is not true. Um, one more claim to human uniqueness is very much on the chopping block with this research on language. What did Rene Descartes have to do with our giant collective blind spot about the possibility that animals did, in fact, use some version of speech to communicate? I mean, Descartes' whole idea, and this was in, you know, the the 17th century, that was that only humans were kind of truly alive, right? Like other animals had bodies like ours, which worked like machines that were mechanistic, but only humans had mind, only humans had thought and abstraction and free will. Um, and the evidence of that for Descartes was language that we are the only ones who could speak. No animal ever said a word at all. If you, even if you tried to teach them, they wouldn't learn. If you take even the, you know, the most uh, deprived child, a human infant, that human infant will learn language with almost no problems at all, you know, with and, and with very little explicit instruction where no animal will ever learn language. And this to him was just, just a very striking distinction. And that goes back even farther to Aquinas and, you know, some of the older medieval thinkers that language was really the thing that separated humans from all other species on earth. And, you know, that got incorporated into modern science, just like a lot of Cartesian ideas did of animals being, you know, kind of objects that they were kind of automatons driven by instinct, uh, driven by their own mechanisms without any real agency and subjectivity the way we had it. Okay, so if language were this ability strictly limited to humans, it made sense for scientists at that point to hunt for biological evidence of this. And briefly, it seemed like we had it. How was the FOXP2 gene discovered and thought to explain temporarily why we're the only species ever to talk? Yeah, this was a very exciting moment that, you know, was a little bubble was then burst um, that in 2001, geneticists discovered that this family in London that had this very particular speech disorder um, called uh, developmental verbal dyspraxia. Um, it, basically, they can understand language, but they can't coordinate their muscles to produce like syllables and words in the proper sequence. Um, it turned out that the one thing that's different about this family compared to other people who can who don't have this disorder was a change in the FOXP2 gene. So this discovery 
you know, just ignited the public, um, the public imagination that this was the gene that explained it, right? This was the gene that allowed us to talk. It was the language gene and we must have it and nobody else has it. And that must explain why we're so special and why we are the only, you know, linguistic species on earth. Then slowly scientists started looking into the genomes of other species and they're like, well, actually we found FOXP2 in ancient hominids like Neanderthals. They found it in rodents and birds, reptiles, fish. Like there's all these other species that also have FOXP2. So, and this is the same story that's been told literally about every, you know, every time linguists or biologists would come up with one thing that set humans apart, right? Like it's, whether it's tool making, it's this gene, it's this brain capacity, it's this brain part, whatever it is, one by one, scientists then later find, oh, wait, everyone else has it too. Okay, so if there's not one magic gene, maybe there's something about our anatomy that enables speech. So we thought if maybe it's our special and superior larynxes that make us different, not so much. Yeah, not so much. I mean, and that was a kind of older idea um, because we have a descended larynx. Our larynx is very low in our throat. And um, that's actually really costly because it it makes it more likely that we choke on our food. Um, It allows us to make a variety of sounds, but it has this big price, you know, that you you would have more choking hazards. Um, So the theory, and I think this goes back to Darwin's time, was that we have a descended larynx because that's what allows us to make language. And that's such a huge benefit that it was worth, you know, it's a worthwhile trade-off, evolutionarily speaking, to, you know, have the, the greater risk of choking. But on the other hand, you get this great benefit of language. And so the idea then was that we must be the only species that has it right, that the descended larynx. And so then it makes the evolution of language a little more tractable as a problem because it's like a physiological change happened in humans and only humans, and that's why we got language. Well, that was sort of a theory that was floated around for many years until around 2001 when a cognitive scientist named Tecumseh Fitch actually convinced goats and deer and dogs. He did all these different species and he brought them into his lab and put them under an X-ray. And he somehow got them to vocalize while under X-ray. And when he did that, he discovered, okay, a dog doesn't have a descended larynx, but if you do an X-ray of a dog while it's barking, you can see the larynx. uh, It's in the top of the throat. And then as soon as they start barking, it goes way down. It descends just like ours does. So they don't always have a descended larynx like we do, but their larynxes actually move in a way that allows them to make the same kind of range of sounds that we make. And there's actually also a species, the red deer, which has the exact same descended larynx that we do. So the descended larynx was another one of these things like, maybe this is the thing that's going to prove that why we're so special. And turns out, no, other creatures have it too. So has this new research led us to new and maybe more expansive definitions of what language is? Yeah, and I think this is what, to me, this was a kind of a pivotal new insight into language, a new way to think about language that really allowed a lot of other scientists to start putting the puzzle pieces together of how language might have evolved. And that is to say, uh, language was, you know, from Descartes onwards, thought of as 
kind of a binary thing. You either, you, you had language or you didn't have language. And so, you know, when scientists would find, oh, I, I found, you know, this monkey makes a call, it's specific to, you know, an eagle. And it would be like, okay, but does the monkey combine them? Does the monkey do this? Does the monkey, you know, all these other parts of language, we would, the, this, these findings would be questioned and held up to that standard. And so it really stymied a lot of comparative research on language capacities. But around 2001, 2002, um, Tecumseh Fitch, a scientist who had actually discovered that our vocal anatomy is not unique, co-wrote a paper with a couple other scientists, including Noam Chomsky, the linguist, saying, you know what, language is not a binary thing. It is actually a, a system that combines lots of different components. There are cognitive functions, there are physiological functions, there are psychological functions. It's a multi-component system that we bring, you know, we harness it all together to make language, but these different components could exist in other species, and in fact, many do. What might the use of language-like vocalization of any kind or movement-based communication of any kind tell us about the capacity for thought in non-human animals? Well, that was a, a another old theory about language, which persisted right up until recently, which is that, um, and this goes back to Descartes, where he said, language, only humans have language because only humans have thought. And language is, for him, the medium of thought, that you just couldn't think about, uh, you know, an abstraction, a philosophical idea, um, you know, a mathematical formula. You couldn't think about those things at all without language. Just somehow language must have evolved to help us think. And really that language and thought are basically the same thing, that without language, you wouldn't be able to have those ideas. The same way you can't sort of make a long calculation in math without using mathematical notations. You know, you can do simple math, but to get to the complex math, you know, you got to write it down. You have to have the notation. And the thinking was that language does the same thing for us, for thoughts. And there was a lots of different reasons why people thought that, linguists and biologists alike, that there are aspects of language that actually you know, aren't really useful for communication. Sometimes grammar makes communication harder rather than mm -hmm. easier, you know, um, and and yet everyone knows grammar. Like babies will learn grammar and grammatical rules without ever being explicitly instructed in it. You know, they just pick it up um, instinctively. It's a, we have a gr gram, an instinct for grammar. Um, which is, you know, the underlying basis of language. And so why would we have this this complex system that we innately just go, you know, can learn, um, and yet it doesn't really help us communicate all the time? Why would we need to have, you know, complex grammar, especially in the past? You know, how did how did syntax help us hunt down mastodons, for example? That's like a famous quote from a linguist. So, we didn't need grammar. We didn't need all this complex, you know, linguistic capacities for most of our history. So why do we have it? Well, the idea is that we must have had it just so we can think. Um, and it was only recently that cognitive neuroscientists have actually tested that empirically by putting people under MRI machines and seeing what their brains are actually doing when they are thinking a thought or trying to solve a mathematical puzzle, for example, or 
you know, listening to a snatch of storytelling and absorbing language. And they're finding it will, two separate brain paths. So in our defense as arrogant humans, Sonia, another big challenge to discovering language in other animals is that it may exist but not resemble our own communication. Some scientists are thinking now that animals that use echolocation might create some kind of acoustic pictographs. What are these exactly? Yeah, this was something that uh, um, a, a cognitive scientist was uh, sort of speculating, right? Like if a animal is recognizing objects by, you know, putting out little chirps and then listening to how the echoes come back and creating a kind of uh, diagram in their minds made of sound of what that, you know, object is, could they do that for, you know, what we consider words, like nouns, like, or, or verbs, like, could they see a particular octopus, for example, and create an audio pictograph uh, using chirps and clicks, um, of, of that particular octopus, you know, Oscar the octopus, not just generic, but like specific, um, could they, they could do that, right? Like this is a possibility, but the point he was making is even if they were doing that, if we recorded them, all we would hear is chirps and clicks, you know, <laughs> like we wouldn't be able to decode any of that. And so this is the huge um, challenge in figuring out what animals are communicating about and and what kind of systems they are using is that we don't have any trans we don't have a decoder ring you know we don't have any trans translator um, it's as if they are extraterrestrials I mean this is like the movie Arrival right where there's aliens come up, come to come to Earth and this linguist has to figure out well what are they saying how do you do that you have no common code in which to, you know, decode each other's expressions. And this is really quite similar to the problem we have with other species. And deciphering these is hard because we just might not understand where to divide different expressions, which brings us to what sounds like nonsense words, ad agra nawe. <laughs> That's right. Ad agra nawe. You know, if, if you don't know, like you and I are talking I'm saying a long string of sounds that your mind understands where the word, the meaningful units begin and end. Um, you know, even if I keep talking continuously, when to say, okay, this is the part I'm going to decode as a word, and the next, this is the other part I'm going to decode as another word. Um, if you don't know the, you know, communication system of another species you wouldn't know how to do that. So one theory was that, well, maybe, um, you know, we can decode other species by just assuming that when there are moments of silence, that that is the punctuation mark. Like that's what marks the beginning and end of the meaning encoding units, uh, that there's just a little tiny pause. Right. Um, and then they realize like there's there's actually people who whistle their languages. There's whistled languages. These are common in, in mountainous regions. Um, and these whistled languages can communicate everything that spoken language can. So it's you know it's, it's very complex and and expressive. And they realize then that, well, if they use that same heuristic that, okay, let's look at whistled languages as if we're aliens, we don't know anything about them, and decode it as if the little pauses are 
punctuating the meaning encoding units. Well, if you do that with whistle language, you would get it all wrong. Um, and so then they realize, okay, well, we really just don't know, you know, where these units begin and end. Um, so add agra nawe is, you know, if that's that's a dog ran away with the improper segmentation, right? So you if you don't know the right segmentation, then you can something that's totally meaningful just turns into gobbledygook, and that so that's the problem that these researchers are facing. What did scientists learn when they gave a group of dolphins what amounted to a vending machine for toys? Oh, this is a fascinating study. It was done in um, in the 80s, actually. It was, it was published in 1993 uh, by a dolphin cognition researcher named Diana Reese. And she, uh, she, you know, there had been studies with dolphins where they would kind of um, compel them to interact with humans, you know, by giving them food rewards and things like that. Um, but she decided, let's just give them complete control and choice. So they can just, they can interact with this thing or not, right? Like we're not going to force them to. And so she dev devised this underwater keyboard that was, you know, had big keys on it. The dolphins could depress the keys with their um, rostrums, which is, you know, like their nose, like what we would call colloquially their nose. And when you press the button, it would light up, it would make a sound, and uh, the sound was like a computer-generated whistle, you know, something similar to what a dolphin could produce, but not a dolphin whistle. It was generated by a computer. And so the, you press the button, it makes a sound, this whistle, and then you get something for it. Like the dolphin would get a ball for what they press the ball button, or they would get a, a ring to play with, or they'd get a belly rub, or they'd get, you know, diff different things like that. And what she found is she just left it there for them and they start pressing the buttons, right? And then they're getting the ball because they press the ball button, they get the ball, they hear the computer generated whistle for the ball. And then she noticed, and this was kind of by mistake, it wasn't really part of the study, but there she was recording them all the time. She noticed that when they were playing independently with the ball, so they weren't pressing the buttons anymore, they were just playing with the ball and they started making that same computer generated whistle that she had come up with for the ball. <laughs> So it's like she had taught them this, you know, word for a ball, um, and they just started spontaneously mimicking and using that sound. We also have to acknowledge that captive animals are easier to study for a million reasons, but they might not be the ideal population from which to draw conclusions about any of this, right? I mean, it's ultimately kind of stressful and unnatural for an animal to live in even the most humane lab setting. Yeah, absolutely. And then also, do they even want to talk to us? You know, that's the other big question. Mm. How do you get how do you capture what they're really saying to each other when they're in this, you know, weird environment and and we're trying to get them to like do this while we're there, essentially. Um, so it, it tells you what their capacities are, what their latent faculties are, you know, what they might be capable of in the wild. But to figure out what they're really saying to each other in their own habitats. You know, that takes observation in the wild. Um, so which is, you know, well, field work, years and years and years of field work, which is why this research is, um, you know, 
just starting out. I mean, you just, you need, you need 10 years, I think, to habituate chimpanzees or gorillas in the wild uh, to your presence as a researcher, you know, so it takes that long just for them to get used to you. So they're not like freaking out when you're there so that you can start recording their behavior and recording their vocalizations and gestures. And so this work is really almost just starting in a way, although it's been going on for decades, um, but they're starting to get some interesting results now from um, these studies in the wild as well. Have scientists found ways to distinguish between the animal equivalent of a purely emotional expression like ooh or ouch and a word like dog or chair or tree? Yeah, I mean, that's been a big, uh, that was kind of a big methodological breakthrough, I think, because there was a lot of studies in the past, like up through, you know, kind of the 80s, where scientists were like, oh, look, like this this, you know, this squirrel makes a certain chirp for this man who's wearing a blue shirt and makes a different chirp for a woman wearing a white shirt, right? Like there's specific calls that seem to correlate with different objects. So it sounds like almost like words. Um, but linguists said, well, no, that's not like words at all because you know, they might just be make they might just be responding to these different objects in their environment using different sounds because they feel different emotions from them. You know, just the way like a baby might cry differently when the baby is hungry as opposed to when the baby like has a, you know, dirty diaper or whatever. Like, you know, parents can understand the different cries even though the baby's not trying to tell their parents, right? It's not intentional. Um, so it's only recently that scientists have started uh, kind of untangling intentional uh, communications from these what could be involuntary alarm calls or involuntary calls that different animals make and they've come up with some kind of clever ways to determine that okay this actually is intentional and this isn't just oh I saw a leopard and I'm really scared so I make a certain kind of squeak <laughs> you know as opposed to when I see an eagle and I make a different kind of squeak right like other creatures might understand that but and it might be communicative but it's not intentional in that same way. So all this leads us to the question, Sonia, if other animal species have at least the essential parts in the biological and genetic and cognitive toolkits that we think enable human speech, why might our degree of communication ability not have evolved in many other species? Yeah, so this is this is sort of the the you know million dollar question right there, Chris. <laughs> why why only us then? I mean, some people would say you know, maybe it's not only us, maybe there is more complexity and more language-like communication systems in other species. And other people say, well, you know, if there were, then wouldn't we know by now? Like, w we've been looking for all this time because it's, you know, something that many people are interested in, right? Like the idea of a talking animal is like this fantasy that has occupied our kind for many, many years, and we haven't really seen it yet. Um, so there's different theories about why that might be. And uh, one of the most popular ones is this idea of domestication being um, somehow critical to developing language or language-like abilities. Um, and this is this has to do with becoming more kind of sociable. So they know that um, when you domesticate a species, like when a wolf is domesticated into a dog, 
uh, scientists have known this for a long time, that along with that change in behavior where the wolf becomes more social, less reactive, less aggressive towards humans, all these other changes also happen that seem unrelated. So they'll get floppier ears, or eyes will get bigger, their foreheads will get bigger, they'll have less sexual dimorphism, their brains get a little smaller, their bodies get a little smaller. You get this whole host, they'll get spots that they won't have otherwise. And this is not just true in dogs when they're domesticated from wolves, but also with you know lots of other domesticated species show this same complex of changes. It's called kind of the domestication syndrome. And uh, some some scientists back, you know, going back to Darwin have hypothesized that maybe humans are also a domesticated species in the same way because we have that same complex of changes, you know, that turned a wolf into a dog. Like we are, we have that same variety of changes if you compare us to an ancient hominid like, uh, you know, some of our ancestors. Um, we, you know, so, so the idea was that maybe we domesticated ourselves, maybe we became more sociable through some change in the environment, the same way the, the wolf became more sociable and became a dog. And so there's now new studies that have found that possibly by becoming maybe another part of the domestication syndrome is becoming more linguistic, being able to um, express more complex, uh, having a more complex communication system. And it could be that, you know, the cognitive abilities are already there, the the physiological abilities are already there, like all of the components are there, but people aren't, but individuals are not putting those all together because of some sort of barrier in the environment. So if you take those barriers away, say predators, right, like you don't have predators anymore, you're in this domesticated, safe, buffered environment. Maybe that's when you can actually start to use language in this, com you know, start to use communication in this more complex way. And they have found that birds that are domesticated for, you know, prettier f feathers and plumage have more complex songs. Um, they find that wolves that are domesticated from, you know, dogs are, um, will will more easily understand a pre-linguistic thing like. I'm pointing my finger at something. Uh, the dog will look where my finger is pointing to rather than the finger itself. Like a wolf will just look at your finger. And that's a prerequisite for any kind of uh, complex communication, right? Like the two individuals have to agree like, yes, we are both looking at that one thing and now I'm going to, we're going to talk about it. Um, so dogs can do that, but wolves can't do that. Um, and so there's a number of like kind of suggestive evidence that maybe by becoming domesticated in the sense of becoming more sociable and less uh, maybe so, because of a buffered environment, maybe that's what allows us to put all of these other abilities that we already have, put them all together into language. Sonia Shaw is a science journalist. Her article, The Animals Are Talking, What Does It Mean?, was published in the New York Times Magazine. Sonia, this has been so interesting. Thank you for making time to talk about your research and your work. Thanks so much, Chris. Thank you. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram and subscribe to the podcast free where you like to get podcasts or listen at our website, think.kera.org. Again, I'm Chris Boyd. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.